I'm turning this morning to the book of Acts once again, Acts chapter 4 this morning, Acts chapter number 4. Over the last few weeks, we have been uh, studying Acts chapter number 3, and we have been learning about the healing of a lame man, and that when the disciples were questioned about how this man was healed, of course, Peter, as being the primary preacher in the passage, Uh, declared that it was by the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in which this lame man was healed. Uh, Peter preached a very stinging sermon about the reality of what those who had witnessed Jesus, those that had heard him, and how they had crucified him and had denied him. And lest we think that the narrative came to an end, chapter 4 continues with what had happened And what we see is that Peter and John were apprehended, they were taken into custody, and they're called to give an account uh, before the rulers and before the leaders. If you look with me at chapter 4 and verse number 1, we see this event or this narrative begin to unfold. It says, And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus." But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. I want to draw your attention back to verse number 12 and our subject this morning, a very simple title, Salvation. Salvation. Peter's words are very clear, very direct, very bold. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter and John in this narrative are called, summoned before the priests, the elders, the leaders, to give an account, to give an answer for the healing of this lame man we've been studying over the last three weeks. Primarily, they were enamored with the healing, but I believe they were most bothered by the name that was being used, the name Jesus of Nazareth. There is no sermon that can exceed the directness and the boldness of which Peter preached. This is one of the most bold sermons that man has ever preached. He not only declared that it was by the name of Christ that this man was healed, but in the sermon he charged those leaders, those elders, those priests with murder. He told them that it was by their hands that he was put upon a cross. But even more staggering is he reminded them of the fact that the resurrection. That cut to the very root, especially of those who were known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in any resurrection, let alone the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter goes on even further. He then declares that salvation can only come through the name that you hate and despise the most. Salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. There is no other name. There is no other way. There is no other work. There's nothing you can do but by the name of Jesus Christ. He said not only was this man who was lame healed, but now he announces that salvation must be through that same name that healed the lame man. When we think about the word salvation, what salvation is, it's a great word. It's a wonderful word. It's a word that if you're in Christ today, you know the benefits of salvation. You know what it is to be saved. But salvation includes the cleansing of all our sin. It includes the cleansing of our past sin, including our past guilt. But it also delivers us. It delivers our soul and it delivers us now from the power that sin is supposed to have over us. Sin is no longer to have the preeminent spot in our lives and in our hearts. Christ Jesus should have that place because He is the preeminent one. But when we think about salvation, we also have to remember that salvation is the total restoration of a fallen man. Man fell in the garden. Man fell in Adam. All are guilty because of the sin of Adam. Salvation restores man back to that original state. We are all found guilty by the sin of Adam. All guilty by the sin of Adam. And all are, who are saved are saved through the name 
of Jesus Christ. Someone might say today, I'm not guilty of Adam's sin. The Bible says otherwise. You are guilty of the sin of Adam. In Adam, all men fell. And in Christ, if any are to be saved, it'll be through the name of Christ. Jesus Christ saved us, saved us from the sin that so easily beset us. And we are now been placed upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Nevermore to Rome. That's what salvation is, put as simply as I can put it. What salvation is not. Some people, when they use the word salvation, say salvation just means I've been delivered from hell and I get to go to heaven. That's not salvation. Salvation and being delivered from hell and gaining entrance to heaven are the effects of being saved. Oftentimes, we simply say salvation is just getting to go to heaven instead of going to hell. No, we're actually redeemed and removed from hell because we are saved. We enter into heaven because we have been saved beforehand. We are saved by the righteousness and the merits and the blood of Jesus Christ. Our everlasting eternal state is the effect of salvation. Salvation does include being delivered from hell. I do know with 100% certainty this morning that if I die today, I will not go to hell. I will not spend a moment in hell. Not because I'm a good person. Not because I'm a pastor. Not because I've been baptized. Not because I take the Lord's Supper. Not because I read my Bible. Not because I pray. But based solely on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting fully in Christ alone, my hope is found. My hope is not found in me. Your hope is not found in me. Your hope is in Christ alone. Salvation begins with us wanting nothing to do with Christ. You are not saved today because you decided to look for Him. You're saved because He came after you. He came when you were roaming far, far away with no desire to, to know Him, no desire to see Him, no desire to believe upon Him. Jesus Christ came to you. And as that beautiful picture in the Scriptures, He came as a shepherd. And He placed us upon His back. And He carried us to where now we understand that we will evermore be in the presence of the Lord. Now the text here tells us this morning that there is no salvation outside of Christ. You could be here today and you can say, I don't agree with that. And that certainly is your right. That is your point of view. But if we believe the Word of God to be the Word of God, and we believe it to be the absolute only source of truth, then we know the Bible says that there is no salvation outside of Christ Jesus, no matter where you look, no matter what you do. No matter what you think you can do, no matter what you think you might do, there's no salvation outside of Christ. There's only one way. When Peter declared verse 12, amongst these other verses, when he told this, this assembled uh, panel, this council of people, all unbelievers were led to believe. There, there was not a single person who believed in the name of Christ. And he declared to all of them, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. 
He was not saying something that would just mildly agitate them. He was not saying something that was just a little bit upsetting. He was saying the worst possible thing that they could hear is that Christ was the only way of salvation. Notice that verse ends by saying, whereby we must be saved. Some have been exposed to the reality that salvation is something that you are just presented and then you get to chew on it a while and consider whether it's for you or not. The gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is a command. You are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. It doesn't say consider if Jesus is good for you. It doesn't say if Jesus helps your life. It says you are commanded to repent. Repent of what? Of sin. And believe on whom? On Christ Jesus. It's not to be considered. It is simply a command and we are commanded to repent of our sins. Peter is preaching here truth. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And then secondly, he says that there is salvation, but that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. Outside and inside. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation. In Christ is where salvation is found. The joy of my heart today is that the fact that there actually is salvation. Have you considered what it would mean if there was no salvation? Everlasting fire of hell would be your destination. There would be no effects of that salvation. We would all end up there because none of us are righteous. No, not one. Not one of us could get to heaven on our own merits, on our own goodness. You say, preacher, I am a good person. Not according to Scripture, you're not. According to Scripture, apart from Jesus Christ, there are none good. There are none righteous. No, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short. But praise God, there's a remedy. There's a Savior. No, there isn't salvation outside of Christ, but there is salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's the glorious truth that Peter is preaching, even though it's not received well. You see, just because the message of the gospel of salvation is not received well doesn't mean that we stop preaching it. The gospel message is not received today. There are many that would be offended by what I just said about their salvation in none other but Jesus Christ. There are churches that would throw me out on my ear if I said that today because they don't believe that. They believe salvation is found in the baptistry waters. They believe that salvation is found by taking the Lord's Supper. They believe salvation is found by offerings or by good works, by works of charity. They would be angered that I'd say such an exclusive way of salvation is only through Christ Jesus. And yet that's what the Bible declares. There's only one way. There isn't salvation outside of Christ, but there is salvation in Christ. So we see that in these first three verses. Now I read through that entire narrative up to verse 22 because I wanted you to see what was happening. But in those first three verses, you'll notice that as they were speaking, the people were hearing what had happened. This council had taken upon themselves to come upon Peter and John and take them into custody that they might question them. They were, notice verse 2, it says they were grieved that they taught the people. 
Now this council, we'll talk about who was on this council. This council of people were especially grieved by any doctrine that was contrary to their doctrine, especially with regard to the resurrection. You and I who know Christ today, we have no problem believing that the resurrection is fact. We have no problem claiming that what happened is true. But to the Sadducees and to many on that council, they despise the idea of a resurrection. There are some, again, in churches today that will speak nothing about the resurrection. They will talk nothing about Jesus Christ today. They will talk nothing but something that this is just some sort of a holiday. The resurrection still angers people today. The cross angers people today. And yet Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection. Yet grieved these people were. What were they grieved at? They were grieved that they taught the people. What does verse 2 tell us they taught them? They preached through or in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You see, the problem here was not only did they preach the doctrine of the resurrection, but they gave an example and an instant that they couldn't argue with. We don't understand how controversial Jesus' resurrection was during those days. When we read the accounts and being worried about the body being stolen, it was not a social media day when things would, would go from place to place. Word would travel. Have you heard what happened? Have you heard about this? They were angry that this Jesus Christ, they could not debate and say for sure what happened because there were eyewitness accounts. There were people that saw him. There were people who spoke with him. They had a miracle of a healing right in front of him. And now Peter drives the sword in a little deeper and he says the same power that healed that man is the same power and name that you must be saved by and it's the same power that Jesus Christ was resurrected by. They not only were against the resurrection, they were against the reality that it was Jesus Christ who had raised from the grave and this doctrine was completely disagreeable, not just to the Sadducees, but also to the Pharisees. Again, as I've mentioned, the Sadducees denied that there was or would even be a resurrection of any dead. They believed that once you died, that was it. There are doctrines all over this world today that believe that. They believe this is your life, we live, and then you die. And then you cease to be. Yet the Bible says that we're all going to live eternally one in one state or the other. We're either going to be in glory with our Lord or we're going to be separated in a place called hell. That's the reality of Scripture. You do not just cease to be. You are going to live eternally forever. That's what eternally means. Forever. The Sadducees just dealt with it by saying, we don't believe in a resurrection at all. It made it a lot easier to consider, I just live and then I die. But they were highly offended by the fact that they said that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and that the general resurrection of the dead, not just Jesus, but that the resurrection of all the dead was by the name of Jesus Christ. I said in our first hour this morning that to disbelieve in the resurrection is to disbelieve in the salvation of our Lord. You cannot deny the resurrection and be a follower of Christ. It is the very pinnacle of the acceptance of God the Father, that the atonement that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. 
So what did they do? Verse 3 says they laid hands on them. They seized them by force is what this means. They took them out of the temple, put them in the hold or the prison. This was not a common public prison, but they put them in a place that was under the watchful eye of a set of people, a set of men that would guard them to make sure they didn't leave. Similar treatment Paul would receive often. They would chain a guard to Paul because they were afraid he would leave and Paul would just proceed to preach the gospel to them. Put me in chains and I'll just preach the gospel more. That's the concept, the idea here. So it was evening, so they waited until the next day. Now you want, I want you to notice that the reality here is, is what were they, this council of people, what were they most intolerant of? Uh, they were intolerant of the narrowness that Jesus Christ was the only way. Now here's the profound truth of the matter. Most all of these heathen nations, all those had different gods. And most other nations would look at another nation's God and they would respect that God. And they would say, oh, your God is real and true, just like our God is real and true. The problem was the Jewish religion and the religion of Almighty God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They declared there's only one God. There aren't other gods. You realize anytime you read in Scripture about gods, they are pretend gods. There are no other gods. There are no other divine beings that are God. Even if man says, they're my God, they are not a God. They are simply an object of somebody's adoration and worship, but they are not a God. But they were tolerant of it. How many times have we heard that word in our society today? Tolerant and intolerant. You're declared as intolerant if you say that there's salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. You're said you are intolerant. Well, to an extent you are. However, Christians are not intolerant. They are simply speaking the words of what the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the one true God has said is so. Have no other gods before me. In this ecumenical, let's unify everybody around something, you and I cannot recognize false gods and say, your God is true. There's only one true God. That one true God is the God of all creation. But these heathen nations accepted others. So when Peter and John went in there and actually said, wait a minute, there is salvation in no other God. No other heathen nation, no other person, only in Jesus Christ. So the Christian religion, we'll call it this morning, we might be called intolerant. It's not the proper word. It is the words of the one true God. Now a world that hates Jesus Christ is going to call you intolerant. They're going to call you prejudiced. They're going to call you bigoted. They're going to call you everything under the sun because you believe that there's only salvation in Jesus Christ. Peter and John, that's what they're being accused of. Yet notice that the Bible says there is no true salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Churches often are being approached by those who have other gods saying, if you love people, we are going to come together and unify. It is impossible for those who are truly saved and those who are truly in Christ Jesus to simply ignore and unify with somebody else who has an entirely different God. 
you'll hear things like this. Well, don't you want, don't you love people? The gospel shows that we love people. The fact that we want the truth to be proclaimed and that we preach the gospel because it's the greatest message of love that's ever been given. The greatest hate you can do is to tell somebody there's hope in a God that does not exist. And to unify and say, you can have your God, we'll have our God for the sake of love and peace. That's not love. That's hatred. Love is saying, as the Bible, he who is the author of truth says, there is no salvation in any other but Jesus Christ. It's not that we're intolerant. Peter is simply saying and stating the truth. There is no salvation in any other. Now the tendency of a sinful man is to even after he hears the gospel, is to tell himself or herself, I'm going to seek after it myself. I'm going to labor for this salvation. I will tell you this, no matter how long, how high, how low, how deep you seek, you will never find salvation outside of Jesus Christ. You're only going to find salvation in Christ Jesus alone. How do I know that to be so? Because the Word of God declares there is no salvation any other way. It's only through Christ. We never know, but in the presence even today, there may be people here who maybe would never say, I'm trying to earn my salvation or gain salvation by what I do. There are people today that might even claim, look, I, I take the Lord's Supper regularly. I attend my church on a regular basis. And if there was anything else you could do, you would do them. And yet you're doing all those things thinking you can find salvation in those things. You cannot. Now, observing the Lord's Supper as a child of God who is saved is a glorious privilege that the Lord Jesus Christ has left for us. There's nothing greater than when a body of believers observes the Lord's Supper together. But it's for those who are already in Christ. You don't get saved by taking the Lord's Supper. We observe the Lord's Supper because Jesus Christ said, observe this until I come. But whatever you go, wherever you go looking to try to find acceptance with this holy God outside of Christ, you will come up empty. You are not going to find salvation in anything or anyone else except for Christ Jesus. Man will continually try to invent a new way to God. We've all heard it. Someone would say there are many ways to God. There's only one way to God. It's through Jesus Christ. All other roads lead away from God. You say, I don't like that. That sounds intolerant. That sounds narrow. We're echoing the words of what God has said. It is narrow. We are told there's only one way that you can be saved. There is no one here today good enough to get to God on your own. You say, you should see my list of things I've done. It won't even get you close. Some of the most charitable people are unbelievers. You might be outgiven by an unbeliever. But to think that God says because they gave more, they're going to get to heaven. No. No. 
Now, should you as a child of God be a giver? Absolutely. We're told to care for the poor. We're told to have compassion. Not that we get saved or that we may continue to be saved by doing good works. It is the result of faith. Faith without works is dead. But it doesn't save you. Again, Peter, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now notice with me verse number 4. Since Peter has now said that there is no salvation outside, that's what the message has been. Notice verse 4. We see that a number of people, many of them which heard the word, believed. Now the Bible tells us that the number of those who believed was about 5,000. This message, this sermon, this healing of the lame man had a great and profound impact. People believed. And that's what led the elders and the rulers and the scribes in verse 5 to call these men before them and to question what had happened. This doctrine of the gospel that had been preached by Peter and John, they believed the report of it. They believed what about the report? That Jesus Christ had been risen from the dead, that Jesus Christ was the only way of salvation. 5,000, it says, believed. It doesn't say 5,000 heard. It says 5,000 believed. Think about that just for a moment. But I'd also challenge you to think upon this. The belief of a single soul was a glorious truth. Oftentimes we think, well, the gospel was not too successful today because only one person repented and believed in Christ Jesus. Friends, it's a miracle of God when a single person is converted. And if you're one of those today who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you, just, you know how precious that truth is. And more and more, the longer you've been saved, the more you realize how unworthy you are to receive such an amazing blessing. Yet the disciples were brought before these rulers, these rulers, these elders, these scribes. These were their chief priests, their ecclesiastical rulers. There were scribes. Uh, the Annas, the high priest is there, verse 6. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest. At the head of this group, there were high priests and their families. We're familiar with Annas. We're familiar with Caiaphas. Caiaphas, you might remember, is the son-in-law of Annas. He was actually the high priest during the trial against the Lord Jesus Christ in John 18, 13. John and Alexander are not as well known to us, but most people assume or believe that they were sons of Annas. Usually the high priest, it was his family, his kindred. And notice verse 7, it says that they set them in the midst. Now, this is just kind of an interesting little tidbit for you. The way that they would, you would be brought before a group such as this is they would put you in a, they would, they would be seated in a semicircle. And then you would be placed in the, in the center of that circle so that they were surrounding you, that every person could get a look at you and could listen to what your testimony was. So they are brought to this circle. They're brought here and they're asked. Notice the question. By what power... Or by what name have ye done this? Now one thing we can see, they are not denying that the lame man was healed. Or that people believed. They, they, what, but they want to know whose authority or what power 
did you do this by? When they inquired, they were wanting to know, is this something that was done by natural power of your own? Was it a divine power? Or what was often believed, and even Jesus was accused often of using the devil's power. That's what they want to know. They want to know who cured this man. Was it medicine? Was it some sort of sorcery? Did you have the assistance of Satan? You know what they were looking to do? They wanted to charge Christ's disciples with doing something that could be chargeable. But notice it says what power and by what name. You see, Peter had said by what name this man was healed. And notice verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Ghost at that very moment, he speaks forth, and here's what he says. Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed. This was a good deed. Can you imagine being angry that a man who had been lame all of his life was healed? That's a pretty good deed, isn't it? They're angered by the good deed, and Peter, he acknowledges it. If we're being examined for doing a good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Peter pulls absolutely no punches. He says, be it known unto you all. Again, I don't think we realize the boldness of what Peter is saying here. There are some Christians today that at the minute their faith gets pressed, they back up and they walk away and they say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Peter says, be it known unto all of you. Every one of those people on the, that, that council had the ability, if they chose to, to have Peter executed if they chose to do that. And he said, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, whoever hears of what happened these days, we are not ashamed, Peter is saying. I'm not ashamed to tell you whose name this is done by. He goes further and he answers the name, but he uses one of the most hated titles of Jesus, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now that word Nazareth was a hated word. And they're very clearly saying by calling on that name, by making the use of it, and by the power and authority of Jesus Christ, that word Jesus of Nazareth was a mocking way to speak about Christ. Peter didn't use this just randomly. He knows exactly what he's saying. The name that you hate, Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Whom ye crucified. Now, we understand it was ultimately Pilate that delivered him up. We know it was the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross. Yet we also know that this council of men had something to do with Jesus being delivered up. Now, of course, Jesus was not taken against his will. He willingly, voluntarily gave himself up to go to the cross. This was all according to the predetermined counsel of God. But Peter makes no bones about it, whom ye crucified. And then here he says it again, whom ye, whom God raised from the dead. 
Remember, the apostles were witnesses of this resurrection. They saw him. They spoke with him after his resurrection. And this was the doctrine, which we read in Mark 16, when he said, go into the world and preach the gospel. It's not just go preach Jesus on the cross, but preach the resurrection. It's not just Jesus' death. It's his death. It's his burial. It's his resurrection. And even as Mark 16, as we read, ends, it's his glorious ascension back to the right hand of the Father, which is where he is seated today. That was not going to deter Peter and John and from the apostles of preaching this. Bring us before the Sanhedrin. Bring us before these groups. Do whatever you want to do. By way of an application here, there's the great courage and the faithfulness of these gospel preachers. Folks, how desperately we need bold, faithful gospel preachers who are not going to back down and start preaching a watered-down message. And if you and I have been privileged to be able to hear sound doctrine and sound preaching, we ought to glorify God for that. Because there are so many who are lost in false doctrine. There are so many people today who are trusting in themselves for salvation. They're trusting in some other God. They're trusting in their good works. And they are so far from the kingdom of God. They're not going to be deterred by whatever's done to them. They're going to continue to preach in this name. And then Peter does something pretty remarkable. He says in verse 10, he says, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Somewhere in this narrative, either A, when they, the council brought Peter and John out, they also brought the man that was healed out, and Peter and John said, here's that man that was healed. Look at him standing. Lest you think his sermon is over, he said, this is the stone, verse 11. That is that Jesus of Nazareth by whose name the lame man was made whole. This is the stone that was spoken of. We read about that in Psalm 118. This is the true Messiah who's compared to a stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. To be set at naught means he was rejected by you. You were called the builders, but you, you made a miserable work of this. He is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is. But you, because of your own righteousness, rejected Christ. Not only His person, but you rejected His doctrine. Treated Him, mistreated Him, scourged Him, put Him to death, yet He was gloriously raised from the dead. The stone. The head of the corner. The chief cornerstone in which the whole building is fitly framed together. And then back to where we started, neither is there salvation. Christ is the only Savior and Redeemer who was prophesied, who has saved and redeemed His people. He's redeemed us from the law. He's redeemed us from sin. He's redeemed us from Satan. There is salvation to be found nowhere to be hoped for in any other other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name. 
There'll be no other greater name than the name of Jesus Christ. There'll be no other name who come after him. Oh, there'll be many who claim to offer a salvation. There are people today who are offering a new way to be saved, a new way of salvation, a more updated way to get to God. All those ways will lead to everlasting fire. He not only said, is there no other other name, but he said it's under heaven, the whole earth. One of the glories about the gospel is, is whether I'm standing here in this town, the same gospel is the same gospel that goes anywhere else in the world. It's not changed because of the audience. It's not changed because of the language. It's the same message. There isn't a God for certain speaking people. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is no other name. If you've ever had the privilege to go on a a missions trip, one of the glories is, is you can go and you don't have to change the message. You preach the same Jesus. Because there's no other name in all the world whereby we must be saved. Notice the phrase, given among men. Why do we know and have salvation? Because it's been freely given by the Father. Jesus Christ Himself said, all that the Father hath given me will come to me. One of the greatest comforts of the Gospel is knowing that every time the Gospel goes forth, there is none that will not come to Him that the Father gave to the Son. Jesus Christ was given as a sacrifice for the sins of His people. We believe in freely preaching the Gospel to every person. No matter who walks in that front door, we preach the Gospel. We don't not preach because they look a certain way, act a certain way, or even are involved in a certain sin. We preach the same gospel. Folks, if you're paying attention, sin is sin. The means in which the sin is being delivered just changes from time to time. What you see happening in our world today is the effects of what sin and the depravity of man. What does every sinner need? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the message. You say, but they're this. They believe this. Jesus Christ is the only name in which a person can be saved. That person that's in your mind that you say, that person doesn't deserve to be saved. You didn't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. We do not believe in just simply saying the gospel is not for you to be heard. What we believe is that salvation is of the Lord. Which means we give the gospel and He chooses whom he, say, whom he chooses to save. He's the only Savior whereby we must be saved. Imagine this, that before even the foundation of the world and the purposes and the decrees and the counsel of God, before the world, before the foundation of the world, God had a chosen people and He appointed His Son to be the only way of salvation. Whoever will be saved will be saved by Him or they won't be saved at all. Jesus Christ took our place. He is the substitutionary atonement. 
He took the place of every sinner who has repented, every sinner who will repent. Jesus Christ stood as our substitute. God the Father accepted the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you are in Christ today, He didn't accept your work, He accepted His Son's work. And His work alone. Today, you might say, how in the world, how in the world do I know if I've been accepted? Do you believe in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that He is the only way? Do you believe that salvation only comes through the repentance of our sin and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ alone? Or are you trusting in something else? There is no other way. I do remind you that Christ rose again from the dead. That was the acceptance. Christ would have been in that tomb at this very day if God had not accepted the atonement of His Son. He's not in that tomb. You say, have you been there to see it? No, I don't have any need to. Faith. The Word of God tells me He's not there. The Word of God tells me He's risen. Seeing it with my eyes is not going to make it more believable to me. So it will be with us only trust Christ, their salvation in Him alone. What a dreadful, awful thing it would be to hear the words of salvation, to have it right here in front of you. Again, I say this often, I don't say it just because it's habit. But you might be here today and you might say, listen, I, I'm hearing your preacher, I'm hearing the Word of God, I'm, I'm hearing what's saying, but I'm struggling with unbelief and cry out to God and beg God to help your unbelief. Cry out to God to give you understanding. Maybe these few words today will have power for some of you, for not. You might leave here today unchanged, unmoved. But the glory of the gospel is, is that when the gospel goes forth, the Word of God is effectual. It accomplishes what it was set out to accomplish. If that wasn't the case, I couldn't bear preaching something that I didn't know. He says it will accomplish what, it's, what it is intended to accomplish. You say, so if, if nobody's converted today, then that's the Lord's will. But the gospel was set forth. We've seen it in this little congregation of people. We've seen the Holy Spirit of God convert a soul. We've seen someone go from being completely blinded to their sin to being clearly able to see, I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ has saved me. And it had nothing to do with the man standing behind this pulpit. It only had to do with Jesus Christ's work. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We're not going to cover it today, but Peter and John are, are given a command to not preach any longer. And their words ought to be our words in verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
And they were just threatened further. But they went out and kept preaching the gospel. And that's what you and I must keep doing, is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.